0: Are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love.
1: Scripture today is Romans 8, verses 22 through 28. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to the Sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The second part of scripture today is Psalms 61, verses 1 through 5. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. For you, God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage, Of those who fear your name.
0: Well, thanks, Gail, for reading scripture for us this morning. We are coming into the home stretch of our series on suffering in the Bible. We felt like it was important to study this topic, of course, because of all the upheaval and difficulty that we have seen in 2020. But beyond the big ticket items of health and isolation, social disruption, the economy, we know that suffering. Is very personal. Sooner or later, every one of us will find ourselves in the boat of affliction, as some of you are now, and as some of you have been long before 2020 arrived. And so we ask the question Have you ever been on a ride that you couldn't get off? We know that feeling emotionally in our life when we wake up to a new day and there's such pain and sadness. And the reality of it just all of a sudden washes over us again as we remember what has happened in our life and we can't get away from it. And yet God has not left us alone to fend for ourselves or to figure it out on our own, but he promises that he will be with us. That his ultimate purposes for our life are still in his hands. So if suffering is a fact of life, then How we prepare for it and how we walk through it is of great importance. And that's why we've focused on this these past few weeks. And really today, it's quite the tall order to talk about the Apostle Paul and his theology of suffering, because the topic could be massive. Paul, in his letters, probably speaks in all of the Bible most comprehensively to this subject. And so our aim today is to not try and somehow fly through everything that Paul said about this, But I'd just like to show us a few of what I think are the most precious truths that he knew. That's our plan for today. I want to tell you a little bit about his life, and then we're going to highlight what I think are four of the biggest takeaways when it comes to suffering and what the Apostle Paul taught us about it. But first, a little bit about Paul. I want you to picture who in your life you think would be the least likely person to ever become a Christian. I mean. Who would absolutely shock you if they showed up at work or family gathering or school and they came up to you and said, "Hey, the most amazing thing has happened in my life. I've placed my trust in Jesus and I've decided to follow him." Whoever that person is for you, that was Paul. And because he's such a key figure in the New Testament, we sometimes forget that that for about the first half of his life, Paul wanted nothing to do with Jesus. In fact, he was persecuting Christians in the early church when we first meet him. He was there holding the coats of the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7 when they rush at Stephen and stone him to death. And it says specifically in the text there that he approved of the killing. Then in Acts 9, it says, now read this text for us. Meanwhile, Saul, which was his Jewish name, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that means those following the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This is a guy who really means business about this. It took a whole week to travel to Damascus on foot And that's how seriously Paul wanted to snuff out what it meant to follow Jesus. Have you ever known someone who was really antagonistic toward Christianity? Not just indifferent about it or like they don't believe, but somebody who is really of the mindset that this is for absolute idiots and they let everybody know it. That was Paul. That was the kind of guy he was. And on this trip to Damascus, when Paul was about 30 years old, he encountered the real Jesus, whom he had fought against for so long. And we read the story with the kids, so we won't go over it again here, but I do want to catch one detail from the scene with Ananias. Remember, Ananias was hesitant to go to Paul because he knew Paul's reputation. And this is what it says in Acts 9, 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And then listen to this. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. We do a great disservice to people if we tell them that if they would just follow Jesus, their life would get easier. Health, wealth, prosperity, perfect spouse, Great kids, nice house, you know, hitting home runs every time they step up to home plate. That is not the way it works. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 38, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Paul found life on the Damascus road, and he never looked back but he would suffer greatly in the years to come, greatly and joyfully. In the timeline, what happens next then, after Paul's encounter with Ananias? We come to what is really a lesser-known fact about Paul's life, but one that is absolutely essential to him becoming an apostle. He says in Galatians 1.17, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Arabia. So he fled to the south and stayed down there in the desert for three years. This was a time of preparation for Paul. You know, when you think about this, how many years did the disciples, the 12 disciples have with Jesus? They followed him for three years. And now Paul spends three years learning from Jesus in the spirit, possibly in person, we don't know, but certainly studying the scriptures and their fulfillment in Christ, and being prepared for the road ahead. After three years, then he goes back to Damascus, and he causes such a ruckus there by preaching about Jesus that there's a plot to kill him. So they sneak him out of the city in a basket, and he heads to Jerusalem. Now, once he's finally back in Jerusalem, Paul knocks on the door of the disciples, the Christians in Jerusalem, but they're terrified. You know, last they knew, this was the guy who was literally trying to hunt them down and extinguish their faith in Christ. And it takes Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who takes Paul in, hears his story and vouches for him, and the door opens. That's when Paul gets to know Peter and James, Jesus' brother. And then he starts to minister with them. Acts 9 says that during these days, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord. It's one of my favorite descriptors of Paul. But this was quite a short stay for him. His preaching gets him in trouble again. And like Damascus, there's another plot to kill him, and they sneak Paul out of the city. Then we hit a 10-year patch where Paul is away in Tarsus, which is in Turkey, is where he was from. And there is no recorded activity in the Bible from this time period. 10 years. And I would just ask, you ever feel like you're stuck waiting? like it's just taking forever to get to something, for something to happen, and you'd love for it to hurry up. I'm reminded in Paul's life that God operates on a very different timeline than we do, and that some of his most important work happens in what we call waiting. Ten years, quote-unquote, nothing happened in the life of Paul. He hasn't planted a church. He hasn't written a letter. He hasn't been on a single missionary journey. But I think how important were those 10 years to all that would happen in the last 20 years of Paul's life? We'll never know. Or maybe in heaven, you'll have a chance to ask Paul about that silent decade in his life. In any case, Paul is then in his early to mid 40s by the time Barnabas treks up to Tarsus to find him. And then the rest of Acts and so much of the New Testament carries on from there, tells the story from there. Paul describes his life in 2 Corinthians 11. Gives this kind of summary statement where we see the following list. A little bit of an extended reading, and I'll share it for us. Five times, he says, I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city in in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. That's a whole lot of danger. Verse 27, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Now not included in that list we just read is the number of times that Paul was arrested and the number of years that he spent in jail. Around the dinner table this week at our house, I told my kids that I was going to be preaching on suffering and the Apostle Paul, and this was really struggling to come up with a a title for the sermon. You know, so did they have any ideas for me? Well, I can definitely tell my kids are getting older, and their sense of humor is changing. And so here's what they came up with. Here's what they thought the title should be. Oh, snap, Paul's in jail again. And they could hardly pull themselves together. They were laughing so hard. So... I politely declined, and I'm not very hopeful that they'll be able to contribute in that area anytime in the near future. But in any case, we see in that list from Paul the summary really of the last 20 years of his life. We also know he had something that he called the thorn in the flesh that tormented him, possibly a physical illness, and he pleaded with God to take it away, but it didn't happen. And in the end, extra biblical records indicate that Paul was likely beheaded in Rome. Under Emperor Nero. Paul was a man who was familiar with suffering, like the Savior he was following. And there's so much to learn from what he said. As I said today, I just want to share four of what I think are the most important things we can learn from Paul. And I'm going to summarize each of those with a word. So I don't know if you take message notes at home, you're sure welcome to, but we can remember these four things. This is the outline we'll follow comfort, joy, Christ and meaning. And with those four I'd like to share one chapter from Paul for each of them that I would really recommend you read this week. You know, you just do one chapter each day for 4 days. So Monday through Thursday, let's say, you could read one chapter each day and I think it would be a great overview of Paul on suffering. Here's the verses. 2 Corinthians 1, Philippians 1, Philippians 3, and Romans 8. And they're paired with these four things, comfort, joy, Christ, and meaning. Number one, comfort, the place I want to start. This first big takeaway from Paul is that God comforts us in suffering. 2 Corinthians 1 is the chapter, and Paul starts his letter by saying this in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. God has not left you to suffer alone or to just dust yourself off when life gets tough and to grit your teeth and get through it. What is the healthy reaction of a child who falls down and gets hurt? It's to run to mom or dad and to be comforted. When you think about it, half the time, there isn't even like a physical injury that we'll need tending to, but it is about simply tending to the tears on that little one's face. And so Jesus taught us to call God our heavenly father. And Jesus himself wept over Jerusalem and said how he longed to gather his children under his wing like a mother bird would pull her young ones under her wings to protect them. And when he speaks about the Holy Spirit in John 14, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our comforter. Esther and I were on Skype this week with a couple in Germany, lifelong friends of her parents. And a couple is really going kind to of become a mentor couple for the two of us. Their names are Reinhold and Lucy. Reinhold is German. Lucy is Malaysian. And they served for many years in Nepal, where they would trek up and down the Himalayan mountains, sharing the gospel, discipling the church, and caring for people in the name of Jesus. Then one day in Nepal, Reinhold couldn't move. And he couldn't get out of bed, and they took him to the hospital. He was there in the hospital in Kathmandu. And eventually, he had to leave the country, fly home to Germany, and receive the diagnosis of MS. And I asked Reinhold, when we were on that Skype call this week, I said, Reinhold, what was it like for you spiritually to take in that diagnosis and to walk through that initial stretch? And he said to us, he said, you know, at first, I really fought with God. I really battled God, he said. But eventually, Reinold said, he found himself going to the Psalms again and again. And he'd be in the Psalms, and there he'd find these words to describe to God what he was feeling. You know, what did we read today in Psalm 61? From the ends of the earth, I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. All those years of climbing the Himalayans, serving the Lord, and now he couldn't even get out of bed. But the Lord met him in his suffering, and Reinhold found peace in the comfort of God. Number two, second thing that we learn from Paul about suffering is joy. Suffering and joy, two words that we maybe wouldn't expect to put together, but it is a hallmark of following Jesus. Richard Wurmbrand's story is told in the book and now in the movie, Tortured for Christ. Growing up in Romania, he was about 30 years old when he learned of Jesus and accepted Christ as his savior. And then he served as a pastor under the horrors of the communist regime in Romania. He was imprisoned and tortured for 14 years. And listen to this observation he made. Wormbrand said, I have found truly jubilant Christians only in the Bible, in the underground church, and in prison. Suffering and joy. Many of you are in Y groups that right now have been studying Philippians. And you know that Paul wrote that letter from prison. And one of the key words and concepts in all of Philippians is the word joy. Listen to what Paul wrote in chapter 1, starting halfway through verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, here's these famous words, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to take you back in history to one other character, the greatest preacher of the 19th century. His name was Charles Spurgeon. But what often gets lost in the shuffle around Spurgeon is the extent to which he lived with physical and emotional pain. Spurgeon had chronic kidney disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and gout so severe that he couldn't walk and he would be bedridden for weeks or even months at a time. Scholars are also certain that though they didn't have a name for it back then in the 19th century, Spurgeon, had he lived today, would have been diagnosed with clinical depression. And yet there was a joyfulness about him that was not faked or forced. I want to read to you something Spurgeon wrote. It's beautiful language. It is from the 19th century. So I have to sharpen our ears and listen carefully, but uh, just beautiful words he writes. He says, I bear my witness that the worst days I've ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, He has then been most kind. Our father's wagons rumble most heavily when they're bringing us the richest freight of the bullion of his grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, The tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. 2020 might be called a lot of things. I have not yet heard it called joyful. But I'd suggest to you that you and I can start. That this, even this, is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Number 3, the third big takeaway from Paul, summing up all of this in the word Christ. I'm going to share what that means. I think it is this that in suffering we gain more of Christ. We get to know him better and we're actually made more like him, which is the object of our faith. For this one we're going to flip a few pages further to Philippians 3 and this single breathtaking paragraph. I know we're reading a fair amount of scripture today but it's worth it. Paul says this in Philippians 3 Verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, listen to this, and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I was reading about a physician in New York City this week. Her name is Dr. Julia Wattachero. She's normally focused solely on the liver. She is a liver expert, liver transplants, liver cancer, liver disease, hepatitis. But with the COVID-19 outbreak, she's been working and scrambling like so many in New York in healthcare and working overnights in ICU triage, helping make decisions about patients who worsen and need a higher level of care. As you know, the situation in New York has just been brutal. And that has taken its toll on all of those doctors and nurses and hospital workers. Dr. Watacherro said this about one particularly tough night. She said, I prayed my anger and yelled at God on my roof. Later that day, I was reminded through John 15 about Jesus as the vine and we as the branches, that my job was to abide in Christ. She said, I've been anxious and distrustful of what God was doing. Paul used this phrase in Galatians. He said, until Christ is formed in you, until Christ is formed in you, may that be true even in our suffering. That brings us to our fourth and final principle on suffering in Paul. It's the word meaning. For this one, we turn to our passage in Romans 8, and really, just with time for the very last verse that we'd read, I know that one day we will study the book of Romans at the Y Church. It's one of the places that we have not been yet in our 10 years together, and we'll get there. But for now, this final verse from Romans eight twenty-eight. Paul concludes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. This distinction is so important that God is not the author of evil, pain, or suffering, but he does have the sovereign ability to take evil, pain, or suffering and to bend it for good purposes. You know, Joseph said to his brothers, they'd sold him into slavery, and he said to them, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. And so it is today that God would take what might seem like random, cruel destruction against our souls and against our bodies, and he redeems it and infuses it with meaning. You might be familiar with the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. It's the famous Kubler-Ross model. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross passed away a number of years ago, but she worked together toward the end of her life with a co-author named David Kessler. And together they wrote the highly acclaimed work on grief and grieving. But listen to this. Listen to what happened in late 2019. Not that long ago, a few months ago. David Kessler received express permission from Elizabeth's family to add a sixth stage of grief to the Kubler-Ross model. So he went to them, they heard his case, and they said yes, and they gave their blessing to him. So that after denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, there comes meaning. And I don't believe David Kessler came to this by chance. His own son died of accidental drug overdose when he was just 21 years old. God takes our pain, He takes our suffering, and He reshapes it for our good, giving it meaning and purpose, even as we long to be free from it and one day will be. My friends, on this Sunday, I pray that now and in the future, you will remember these four things in the boat of affliction. God's comfort, our joy, Christ, and meaning. That in your own pain and suffering, whether now or in days to come, that you are not left alone, not for a second. But God is and always will be our ever-present help in times of trouble. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Your ways, O God, are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And yet you come so near to us like a loving parent that tends to its child. And so, Lord, we say thank you for not leaving us in suffering. Thank you for not leaving us defenseless against sin and evil, but that you do come with your strong right arm and you have saved us. Even as this life ebbs and slips away, we pray, Lord, that you would give us strength for today, a bright hope for tomorrow. We say together, Lord, we pray that we will wait on you. And in our waiting, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Why Church Podcast. For more information about The Y Church, check us out online at thewhychurch.org.